Hello and welcome back to our podcast on Research Matters, hosted by UNICEF's Office of Research at Innocenti in Florence, Italy. I'm Kathleen Sullivan, Communication Specialist with UNICEF Innocenti, and today we're talking about the new Innocenti report card, An Unfair Start, Inequality in Children's Education in Rich Countries, with the report card research team, Kat Chen, Anna Gramada, and Gwither Reese. For some background, this report card is UNICEF Innocenti's 15th in the report card series. Every report card produced here at UNICEF's Office of Research examines the well-being of children in industrialized countries using the most recent data available. Each report card includes a league table ranking the countries of the OECD and EU according to their record on the topic. And in this case, the authors of the report who we're speaking to today chose to look at educational inequality. This edition of the report card looks at sources of educational inequality by examining the data on both opportunities and outcomes across three stages of education, preschool, primary school, and secondary school. The report not only ranks countries across these three stages, but based on the findings, suggests best practices and policies that can help to close the gaps in educational inequality. We're lucky to have all three members of the research team here today to hear in their words about this year's report card, An Unfair Start. Kat Chen is a social policy specialist at UNICEF Innocenti. Kat has conducted research for the last four report cards here at Innocenti and specializes in quantitative research as well as research on poverty, inequality, and child well-being in high- and middle-income countries. Anna Gramada is a social and economic policy expert and consultant at UNICEF Innocenti, and Gwitha Reese is a consultant at UNICEF Innocenti with a background on child well-being and child maltreatment. So welcome Kat, Anna, and Gwither to our podcast. Hello. Hi. Hey. To start us off, I'd like to first look at the topic of the report card, educational inequality. Why is educational inequality especially important and relevant to look at now? Uh, we can make at least two arguments, the moral one and an instrumental one. The moral one is about what are the circumstances that are preventing children from realizing their potential. We know that these circumstances can have bigger or smaller impact and it's our responsibility to minimize this impact so that all children are able to realize their full potential. Also, on this moral point, we should be especially concerned with the bottom end namely how far we allow them to fall and what will be the potential consequences, for example, for living independent life. The instrumental argument would be about the impact, the influence that educational inequalities may have on all other types of inequalities in life, for example, labor market outcomes, health outcomes, risk taking. And when we talk about educational inequality, And it's also important how we look at educational inequality. And we look at it through the prism of international comparisons. Why do we do that? Because they allow us to see what are the, how wide are the gaps depending on the country. And if we assume, there is probably there's no reason to assume that children in one country are more intelligent than another one. This is showing us how well the systems have performed and how, how small the gaps can be under the assumption that there always be some gaps, of course, but they don't have to be as wide as they are nowadays. When you think about equality, inequality in education, when you think about fairness for children, is that how you came up with the title of this report? Where did 
an unfair start come from? Um, an unfair start is an excellent metaphor because in our report card we cover at least two different unfair starts. So the first one is the start of one's education. There is plenty of evidence, not just in our report card, but just out there, that in rich countries, children start, when they start school, those from more privileged backgrounds, let's say from richer families, already have better skills. You know, there is this term school readiness. They're, they're, they're more ready for school. They often can read and write and, and count and so on and so forth. So at the start of schooling, some children are already behind. That's very much an unfair start. But then in our report, we focus on inequality in the outcomes of 15-year-olds. So um, in this sense, this is an unfair start of one's adult life. Because at the age of 15, again, there are very wide gaps between the best performing students and the worst performing students. You know, some are not reaching baseline levels of reading literacy, while others are, well, as good at reading as, you know, a PhD level graduate at age 15. And of course, those who come from more privileged backgrounds are, are much more likely to do much better at reading. So that's a very unfair start of one's life. So one of the key features of the report card is the summary league table, which ranks the 41 EU and OECD countries and how they're doing for children in the case of this year's report in educational inequality. Can you shed some light on how you developed this league table? How did you weight and rank the countries? And why is the overall rank only using secondary school data? Yeah, uh, as Kat has already mentioned, the report uh, looks across childhood from uh, preschool up to up to uh, the roughly the end of compulsory schooling in many countries at 15 years old, um, and it presents measures of inequality at preschool, um, at primary schools around the age of 10, and at secondary school around the age of 15. Um, a key feature and highlight of, of uh, the Innocenti Report cards is the league table ranking, and that's often a big focus for, for media and public interest. Uh, so we thought quite carefully about how we should rank the countries. Uh, we did consider uh, taking some kind of average of, of the rankings at each educational stage, but then we realised that in fact what's really important is how much inequality there is um, within each school system towards the end of compulsory schooling at 15. So we decided that we would rank countries purely on how they were doing at when children were 15 years old. And on that basis, uh, Latvia, Ireland and Spain are the top-ranked countries. Um, Malta is the most unequal, followed by Bulgaria and Israel. Um, now, of course, in inequality at the earlier ages is a really important part of the picture, which is why we cover those also in the report card. And in fact, we see that some countries might start with relatively high inequality, uh, but then may do much better later. And that's the case, for example, in Ireland and Slovenia. The report card also highlights some key takeaways from your research, including that tackling educational inequality doesn't have to mean sacrificing high standards, and that high income is no guarantee of high equality. Could you also expand upon why these messages are so important to take into account for closing education gaps? And what else would you say is a big takeaway from this report? 
Well, uh, my impression is that when uh, studies like PISA are published, um, everyone looks at the, the rankings on average achievement, and that's a very easy sort of point of focus for the media and also influences policy makers. But average achievement actually only shows how the average child in each country is doing, and it says nothing about gaps and inequalities and this is what our report really focuses on is this second dimension of how countries are doing educationally if, if you think about wealth or health um, we're generally not only concerned with the average uh, wealth or health in the country but also how that's distributed and if there are huge inequalities for example in health where where some people have much lower life expectancy than others, that would be a concern for, for a country. I think we need to apply the same principles to education. We shouldn't only be looking at how the average child is doing, but also at how many children are falling behind. Um, we know actually from, from the report that there is something of a positive link between the average and the level of inequality. So, so generally, uh, countries that... Uh, uh, um, have better averages also tend to be more equal but it's really not that straightforward um, for example uh, Italy and France uh, are both roughly equal in terms of the, the proportion of children who uh, reach a basic level of reading proficiency at the age of 15 but there are actually huge differences between Italy and France in levels of inequality uh, Italy is actually in the top third of countries for being most equal and France is in the bottom third. So that illustrates, I think, why we shouldn't just look at the average child, but also at um, how all children are doing, and that's what uh, focusing on inequality enables us to do. So I would hope that next time PISA or Pearls or, or TIMS publishes the reports, that the media, the public and policymakers should be looking both at how the average child is doing in their country, but also at the amount of inequality. Mm, thank you. Uh, Kat, could you shed some light on how high income is not necessarily a guarantee of high equality from the report? Well, certainly there is no relationship whatsoever between country-level wealth, something like um, GDP per capita, and uh, a country's ranking in our league table. The top country in the rankings, the, the most educationally equal country is Latvia, um, Latvia is certainly not the richest country in our analysis. So, in the top third of the league table, we have countries like Latvia, Croatia, Slovenia, Portugal, Estonia. Um, while in the bottom third, we have wealthy countries such as, for instance, Luxembourg and France, Australia and Austria and Belgium. That isn't to say that richer countries are towards the bottom and poorer countries are towards the top. Not at all. The, for example, Bulgaria and Malta are at the very bottom of the league table and they're also um, some of the least wealthy countries in the analysis, while we have countries like Spain and Denmark and Japan in the top third of the league table. So there is simply no relationship whatsoever between country wealth and equality in education, uh, at least using the measures that uh, we have looked at in the report card. And I would like to elaborate on with this point about the relationship between equality and standards. Uh, because sometimes inequality is talked about as if there were some collateral damage and this collateral damage being standards or the averages. 
you would like to underline there is no trade-off between inequality and standards. Actually, countries with the highest means also tend to be countries with the lowest gaps. And this is also true for countries with the fewer um, proportion, the, the smallest proportion of children falling behind uh, the basic proficiency benchmarks. So maybe we should start stop thinking about the trade-off between the two values and start thinking about the potential synergy that is obviously yet to be explored, but it's potentially there and that it is possible to have high averages and small gaps. And that's actually, in our opinion, how educational systems should be evaluated because both equality and standards are necessary to provide a fair start. Okay, so building on that I think high income may not be a guarantee of high equality, what other findings would you say you didn't expect or what surprised you the most? Yeah, um, I've already mentioned that some countries um, change their rankings uh, across different educational stages and the examples of Ireland and Slovenia uh, where um, which are ranked much more equally uh, at secondary school than earlier on uh, in childhood. Um, on the other hand, uh, Austria, Belgium and Netherlands uh, go in the opposite direction. Uh, and that actually really surprised me. I would have thought that uh, equality would be more consistent across the different educational stages and would just kind of be replicated and repeated. We'd see the same rankings of countries at primary school and secondary school. But Netherlands is perhaps the most striking example because it is, um, according to our measure, the most equal country uh, at primary school, but 26th most equal at secondary school. Um, now, I think the fact that countries can change their rankings, and certainly the countries that improve is a, is a positive and optimistic sign. It shows that you know, improvement is possible and that um, and nothing is, is fixed. On the other hand, uh, countries that, uh, that are falling down the rankings as children get older might want to consider what factors within their educational systems might be causing that, why, why they're not comparatively doing so well in equality at secondary school as, as they were at primary school. So I think that this is a, a surprising finding and also a really important one in, in terms of policymakers being able to think about the impact of uh, their particular education system. Interesting. Yeah, um, I also would like to um, draw attention to some dimensions of well-being, for example bullying. We analysed 30 countries um, on this respect, between a quarter and a half of them, uh, between a quarter and a half of children in these countries report being bullied at least once a month. What we show is that bullying influences the outcomes. What we could have expected is that bullying will influence the outcome of the victim. Well, this is true, but this is not the whole case. Actually, bullying influences victims, bystanders, and possibly the bullies themselves, because it creates a climate that is not conducive to learning. And we are showing that in 40, uh, 24 out of 30 analyzed countries, um, even with, when we cancel out the effect of social economic differences, gender, language, and all other variables that are likely to influence the scores, we show that the level of bullying 
um, influences the scores and that everybody in the school, I mean the school in average, scores lower. I think this is a powerful finding because it is another sake for the solidarity and only also as adults we can learn something from this research on children that when somebody is bullied we should never think that oh it's not about me because it is about us it is and it influences us through the general climate of bullying okay thank you and Kat, you were surprised by the findings on gender breakdown in the report, is that right? Yeah, well I really shouldn't have been so surprised. As an academic I'm not surprised, but as a person I am. So in our report we focused on reading literacy, because it is uh, somewhat of a gateway to other core subjects. And in reading, at both primary school and secondary school level, girls are overwhelmingly more likely than boys to score higher. So girls' average scores are significantly higher than boys' scores in every country at both levels, primary and secondary, except in Portugal at the primary school level where there were no significant differences between boys and girls. So that, that's really overwhelmingly girls did better. Uh, we also looked at uh, gender differences in maths and science at the age of 15 using data from PISA and, and the, I mean that's all standard if you look at any PISA report over the past several years or from the time when PISA started you, you'll just see that in reading girls tend to do better in maths and science the picture is more mixed but by and large, boys tend to do somewhat better. And it's surprising to me on a very personal level because, okay, I'm an immigrant. I grew up in the former Soviet bloc country. And when I was growing up, I never ever thought that girls were supposed to be better at reading and boys were supposed to be better at maths. You know, what I saw around me was that there were just as many boys as girls doing very well in all subjects and just as many boys and girls doing quite badly in all subjects. And, and really there were some girls who were excellent at physics and some boys who were excellent at literary, literary analysis. And I just had no idea about this until I came to Western Europe for my graduate studies and work. And then suddenly there is all this you know, sociological evidence that girls are apparently doing better at tests of reading literacy. But there is something quite novel in our report on that because um, we have data from an online reading literacy test uh, done in pearls in just 10 countries around the age of 10 when children were roughly 10 and uh, there are also gender differences there in the in the computer-based or online test but in two countries Denmark and Italy uh, the, the gender difference disappeared in the online test and that suggests that in fact it, it you know this whole thing might be in a bit of a artifact of the testing method and in fact across the board boys and girls tended to do better in the computer-based test than in the paper test so that also tells us something about how you know we're testing children so yeah you know i really hope that boys start doing better at reading tests and girls start doing better at uh, maths and science tests because really there is nothing that stops them from doing well at everything right so Getting to some of your recommendations in the report, you make some suggestions for what can be done to close the educational gaps, while noting that each country will have its own unique context to consider. Uh, based on the evidence, what do you think will help close the gaps in educational inequality? 
and why do you think these recommendations are especially important now? I would say um, watch out the age when you start sorting children, especially where there is a social understanding that you sort them by ability, because that's strong labeling. We know that this age among rich countries ranges from 10 to 16. That's a huge difference. And the general understanding is that the earlier you sort children, the more the sorting is likely to reflect their parental stages. We know that countries change their policies, and even those who, um, who cling to sorting children very early change um, the way, made it easier to change trucks. But we still would like to, to say that um, it's something to be really, um, we, we should be really conscious about this. And the general idea was that isn't there some meritocratic hubris in all this? On the first level, in the assumption that we are able to define merit, it's that it's us, it's, it's in our capacity to define merit. Secondly, that we are able to measure merit. And thirdly, that we are able to measure merit of 10-year-olds who sometimes are too early to show their potential. Some of them have not yet met, um, encountered the subject that would really drive them, for example, geography that comes in some countries later. So we should really ask this question, um, can we do this in a responsible way? Gwither, can you talk about your recommendation on reducing socioeconomic segregation between schools? Yes, so we, we use the term socioeconomic segregation uh, in the report. Um, to keep it simple, I, I'll just talk about uh, working class children and middle class children, which is essentially what we're looking at. Um, in all countries, there is some tendency for children with similar backgrounds to cluster together in, in schools. So some schools will have uh, many more or a high proportion of middle class children. Other schools will have a high proportion of working class children. Um, but we see that in some countries, these patterns are much stronger than in, in other countries. And, um, for example, um, Iceland and Japan have relatively low socioeconomic segregation, uh, while Luxembourg and Hungary have quite high socioeconomic segregation between schools. And this factor is linked to inequalities in outcomes, particularly in terms of how well children do uh, based on their parents' backgrounds. So countries that have more segregation also have bigger gaps in achievement between working class children and middle class children. This is really important and I would really recommend that each country should think about whether any of it, the policies that it has are actually contributing to this kind of segregation because it appears that uh, the more segregation you have between schools, the more inequality there is in outcomes. And, and Kat, how does this relate to your recommendation on the importance of social policies? I think social policies are extremely important and we have to make sure that all the policies link up in a way that inequalities between children are minimized. So um, in our report we've, we've talked a lot about how children from uh, you know more privileged families, so as Gwitha was saying, you know, middle class families tend to be um, at an advantage at all levels. 
and uh, of course social policies could mitigate some of that either through services that are available to all children and in particular to more disadvantaged children or through cash transfers or you know a, a really good combination of both so that all children regardless of whether their parents are bankers or street cleaners so that all children have uh, you know all the equipment that they they need uh, to study you know the books and stationery and you know you name it so that they have access to sports and music and all sorts of other enriching extracurricular activities you know debating clubs for example everything and so that every child has a really nice breakfast at the start of the day whether it's at home or at school or the breakfast club it really doesn't matter but Children, you know, the situation of children should in a way be independent of who their parents are because as a society we have to care about all the children and so all the country's policies, health policies, education policies, social policies, you know, really like everything has to link up in a way that we support all of our children. Thank you. So let's talk about the data. The need to produce better data is also one of the key recommendations from this report. What else would you say could be done in the future to shine light on sources of educational inequality from a research perspective? Well, um, researchers always say that more data is needed and uh, <laughs> no, no research Sorry. report would be complete without the recommendation that more research is needed. But um, I, I think actually, you know, the data we've used in the report is really high quality and it, it provides a very rich picture uh, of inequalities. Um, education inequalities in rich countries. However, um, all of the data sources we use only provide a snapshot and over time they can show uh, trends uh, within countries across different groups of children. Uh, but I think what is missing most um, is the ability to understand what happens as children grow up and develop and that can only be done through what we call longitudinal studies so those are studies that follow the same children um, for a number of years ideally across the whole of their childhood there are some very good longitudinal studies now um, in the US, the UK, Germany, uh, France and some other countries uh, that I haven't mentioned as well but there isn't a consistent set of data across countries that enables us to compare. So some countries have much more um, longitudinal evidence than others. And I think what, what would really help to take things forward a stage is to have better data across, um, following children across their childhood. That kind of data can help us, for example, to understand why some children um, beat the odds and, and do much better than you might have expected from, from what you know about their background and, and other children don't. And we can, um, using uh, longitudinal data, we can identify turning points in children's lives and understand much more about how inequality develops. That means we can also understand much more about how inequality can be tackled. So um, it, it would be wonderful to see a... Um, uh, a much bigger uh, cross-national longitudinal study of children's lives so that we can, we can compare countries and understand uh, children's educational uh, trajectories and, and pathways. Okay, well thank you all for joining us and thank you to Gwither, Anna and Kat for going behind the scenes of the Report Card 15, An Unfair Start Today. 
Please download the report card available online now at unicef-irc.org slash unfairstart. And for more updates on our research on educational inequality, child well-being, and more, please follow us on Twitter at UNICEF Innocenti and visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash UNICEF Innocenti. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.